This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, I'm Walter Cunningham, the Lunar Module Pilot on Apollo 7. Welcome to the Dr. Scott Show. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that you tell us you like so much, the Dr. Sky Show, with great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation and weather, and celebrity guests in the mix. And first, I'd like to thank our producer of the radio show, the Dr. Sky Show, Richard Dugan of radio station KZSB in Santa Barbara, California. That's AM 1290. And a big shout out to the many radio stations around the nation that do, of course, air the Dr. Sky Show and our flagship radio station here in Phoenix, Arizona, KTAR News 92.3 on the FM dial. Ladies and gentlemen, the legacy of the Apollo era is still very strong in the minds and hearts of so many people. And yours truly recently had a wonderful opportunity to speak, shake hands, and share stories and listen to great stories from many of the United States members of the United States Astronaut Corps. And today, ladies and gentlemen, a very special guest, Walt Cunningham, an astronaut on board Apollo 7, the first manned test flight of the command service module. Apollo 7 was the only manned Apollo mission launched on a Saturn 1B rocket and from Pad 34 at Cape Kennedy. Apollo 7 was the first manned test of the command and service module. The crew orbited the Earth 163 times and spent 10 days and 20 hours in space. Our special guest is a retired colonel of the United States Marine Corps Reserve, retired. He is Walt Cunningham and the author of a phenomenal book, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to know the inside story and scoop behind the scenes of the space program, he's the author of The All-American Boys. Walt Cunningham, welcome to the Dr. Sky Show. Well, thank you very much, and you, you've got to be really bright because you've read my book. Well, sir, I'll tell you one thing. It's an amazing time in history when we talk about the legacy of Apollo, and I'm honored to have you here on this radio show today talking some specifics about a very important mission after a very sad time in the American space program. This mission, of course, was scheduled to launch, as you know, sir, back in February of 1967, but a tragic fire, of course, killed the crew of Apollo 1 back in 1967. Walt Cunningham, talk about your time in becoming an astronaut. You're, if I'm correct on this, you were NASA's second civilian astronaut. Is that correct? Well, uh, yes, I was. Uh, but I, I got there in kind of a surprising way, even to me, uh, because at the time that I... Applied, I guess. Uh, well, the, the space program, the human space program, was going on for about three years. But uh, if you read my book, you know that I was listening to uh, the countdown for Alan Shepard's liftoff. And yes. after after I heard that, uh, I decided that that was where I was going to uh, uh, go to next. At the time, I was working on doctorate in physics and working at the Rand Corporation out in uh, Santa Monica, California. And uh, I guess I knew that I was a long shot, but I had confidence, and it was a little bit of a surprise to find out that I actually made it. Well, that's an amazing story, sir, because we know from our side, I'm a civilian, I don't fly anything, and sometimes they say in the radio and TV business, all we do is fly a desk. 
But seriously, it's an amazing feat to become one of America's astronauts. Tom Wolfe, of course, exemplified that in the great book and then movie The Right Stuff. And it's, you know, I want people to understand, Walt, this is more about the human side of this part of the interview. You know, not everybody can become an astronaut, and simply not everybody wants to be one. So the rigors of becoming one, I mean, you have to be not only what, the best in your class academically, physically, and also mentally. And, and that today is a very tough challenge. It's, it, it's going beyond the curve. Describe that, because I'm honored to listen to how you'd respond to that. Well, I have to tell you, the program and the requirements to become part of the crews in today's program, that has all changed considerably. And it's not very popular to point out the difference, but the requirements and the capabilities of the individuals uh, is different. Probably many of us, when I got there, there were 30 of us back in those days. Yes. Everybody was a fighter pilot. Most of them were test pilots. And it took a certain kind of personality and activity and experience to do it. Today, it's changed vastly. Uh, most of them, I think, are probably not fighter pilots or test pilots. Some of them are. And uh, a lot of uh, civilians and uh, you know, females and foreign uh, uh members of them. So the whole thing has changed. So I just feel, and I, I'm sure that the way I feel is the way that many of my associates from those days feel, mm -hmm. is that we feel fortunate to have lived when we did, because it was a unique kind of program back then. And uh, we had a different attitude, and we could get away with a different attitude that today would probably uh, not really be popular. And... Uh, Actually, the of, the of the group that we had there, all the way through Apollo, we actually added, we had 30. Mm -hmm. A group of 7, 9, 14, a total of 30. Uh, by the time we flew uh, the first Apollo, we were down to 25 lefts at that time. Five of them had already been died off one way or another. So it took a different kind of uh, attitude about it. You had to understand the value of sticking your neck out a little to get ahead, and you had to have confidence in yourself. Uh, some people would say you had to be egotistical. Uh, well, in the squadrons that I've been in, the good fighter pilots, yeah, you would say they had a little bit of ego, but they tended to prove it to themselves whenever they could also. So that was what was really different uh, about it in those days. So uh, yes, at the time, uh, it seemed like a competition that I had come out okay in, and uh, I felt capable and confident, even though I'm one of the few people there that never knew any one of the others until after I got there. It's an interesting story. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us here on the Dr. Sky Show, a privilege and honor is always to talk to the legacy of American astronauts and those spacefarers that, of course, know so much about the long struggle to get the space. Space is not easy. It is hard, but these individuals that we're talking today, Walt Cunningham, lunar module pilot on Apollo 7, a long time ago, launched back in October, October the 11th, 1968, on a fascinating rocket. If you're a big fan of rockets, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the Saturn V, but the Saturn 1B, which is proudly displayed at the Kennedy Space Center, the lying horizontal. Talk about that rocket, if you would, because I've always admired that rocket. It always looked awesome. 
on that test stand or the launch stand, it was kind of like a like a booster, like a step stool, right, before it went off into space. Well, at the time that we flew the first man flight on the Saturn 1B, uh, excuse me, it was awesome because it was the biggest yeah. rocket that we had flown uh, manned up until that time. And they had gone through, uh, actually, I think we had two tests on the Saturn 1B before we flew it, there were three tests, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, they were unmanned, and then the Saturn V, of course, was much bigger than that. But at the sure. time, it was the biggest rocket that we had, and bigger than anything that the Russians had as well. But what we were doing was trying to demonstrate uh, politically and uh, actively uh, that we exceeded the Russians. But the public today... Today, uh, if they're not old enough, they probably don't realize that we started off behind the Russians. Yes, sir. The Russians uh, launched the first man in space, mm-hmm. Yuri Gagarin. One orbit around the Earth, uh, not significant, except that it was the first human that had been actually in orbit around the Earth. Yes. About, it was about 10 months later that, uh, that we finally got an American up there uh, for the first one. He and uh, John Glenn, who was a Marine, uh, yes, the first Marine to fly. And uh, John went three orbits and re-entered, uh, had some uh, potential uh, physical problems, but we made it back. At that point, the Russians were ahead. The next thing we did, following, uh, I think, about four manned Mercury flights, uh, we started what we call the Gemini program. And on the Gemini yes. program, that was there to fill the time between Mercury and Apollo, because Apollo, they were already working on to develop the, the hardware and then to fly the missions to get manned to the moon. Mm-hmm. But Gemini program that came in there, it flew uh, manned missions for about two years. And what they did is they... Uh, uh, really three areas that showed that uh, we were moving. We moved ahead of the Russians right then. That was uh, extravehicular activity, uh, rendezvous, and docking. We had to do those things. We managed to, I'd say, pretty well perfect them for a a two-man rocket. And by the time the Gemini program was over, we had moved ahead of the Russians, and to, to this day, uh, which is almost you know 50 years later, to this day, we are still technically and uh, operationally uh, quite a bit better off than the Russians. Oh, it's in an interesting that, story. Yes, sir. In spite of that, we have been totally dependent on the Russians to get one of our crewmen up to the space station You know, for the last... Uh, Let's see, I think the last time we flew a manned here was 2010. 2010 I mean, or 11, right, with the last, uh, with the last yeah. shuttle, but you're right, sir, absolutely. And it's yeah. time and we so, do something about it. Well, we, uh, yeah, we go pay the price, $80 million, uh, for mm-hmm. to have an American ride up there in uh, a vehicle uh, that is really not terribly uh, capable, and you're very, very tight. You're essentially along for the ride because the Russians, uh, they're, they're mostly, uh, their vehicles, they can fly unmanned. 
and in an emergency, they, uh, one of them might have to do something, but essentially, it's not the same kind of operation that we've been in. So, right. I'm looking forward to just getting back into the air again with uh, some new rockets and uh, getting back to running our own uh, missions. Walt Cunningham of Apollo 7 is our special guest on the Dr. Sky Show, a legacy of interviews here for the last 10 years from great guests who talk the talk and walk it from astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. And as you were mentioning the Gemini missions, sir, I'm reading this, and obviously this is something that I'm learning. I keep learning about space every day like the listeners do. Your mission, Apollo 7, was the first to carry a crew into space since Gemini 12 back in 1966. And, of course, the sad loss, which we pay homage to on this show and every show that we do, talking about spacefarers, Grissom, Chafee, and White, who perished in that horrific fire in Apollo 1. But your mission, if we can go into some technicals, was an Apollo C mission called the New Block 2 Command Service Module. Obviously, they had to do what? Top to bottom, make changes to make sure that this spacecraft not only was safe, that the potential for having fire in on board the craft was non-existent. And, of course, you had to what? Do the uh, check ride for this particular rocket, uh, the, the Command Service Module, before the great Apollo 8 mission to the moon. Talk about the mission. Because this is fascinating on your 11 days in space. Well, this is a pretty interesting story that the public probably doesn't know much about. And if you don't mind me taking the time, I'd like to bring that up to date. Please please do, sir. We, we, want, we want to hear it. Because uh, we started uh, crew training. I mean, they'd been working for a couple of years on developing a an Apollo command module. But... Uh, we started training as crews during the last year of the Gemini operations, and that was, uh, uh, let's see, 66, at the beginning of 66. Of course, the public wasn't aware of some of this because they weren't even aware when we appointed crews. But the first yes. crew that they appointed was Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Yes. And at the same time they appointed them, they appointed us as the back as the the second crew, and that was Wally Sherrod, Don Isley, and, and myself, uh, Walt Cunningham. So we started training there in 66, and that meant we were working for the first time with the uh, North American, uh, which eventually became North American Rockwell, mm-hmm. but it was North American that had been an expert in preparing for uh, aircraft test flights you know, for years, and they were very, very sure. good. It was the first time they'd been involved with the space program. And so when they assigned our crews beginning 66, we began working with them out there. We also had backup crews, parts parts of them, because some of them are still involved on Gemini. But we began, began working with North American. We mm-hmm. began trying to get that spacecraft that they had thought was pretty well done for them, just building it. Uh, we had to make it operational from our perspective. And that meant a lot of changes. Changes had cost a lot of time. So it got to the point where uh, about uh, five or six months into that training, they canceled our flight. We were the second manned flight, and uh, we'd extended the schedule uh, because of all the changes we needed to be made. And so they started trying to make up for that because the big thing at that time was beating the Russians to the moon. Absolutely. 
Yet today, we did, they were not too sure. But that was what that race was at the time. So yes, they sir. canceled the second flight. When they canceled the second flight, of course, that was our crew. And, but they assigned us immediately to the backup crew for Apollo 1 because we were still on what they call Block 1 spacecraft. Uh, all the changes weren't getting made in the Block 1 spacecraft, just those that mm-hmm. were absolutely essential. And some of the changes that we really thought might be essential, the contractor still had some resistance against that. Against that. Mm-hmm. So then we were the backup crew. We were assigned to the backup crew on Apollo 1. And uh, that was uh, in, in the last quarter of uh, 66. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> we were preparing for uh, the launch of uh, <clears throat> Apollo 1, the first month or two of uh, 67. It would not have been able to go at that time. Uh, but they had been very reluctant to, to, to uh, delay that schedule somewhere there. Mm-hmm. But came time towards the end of January, and uh, we were performing a, a test on the uh, command module, and that was the one where they had the fire. But yeah, that same test, <clears throat> the same test uh, had been done the night before, the, the afternoon before, and Wally Shaw, Don Isley, and I had performed the test then. But the test then was to check out the spacecraft system. It was very brief. It was only about a... Uh, you know, 12 or 15 minutes of actual work on that particular one. But we were doing it with the hatch open, and they had not closed it up and put 100% oxygen in there. All of the missions up until that time had had 100% oxygen. They flew, we flew the missions, and that was just fine. But yes, doing sir. that test on the ground, which the next day was done with the hatch closed, and they were having all kinds of problems, so it took a long mm-hmm. time to even get to the point where you could try to do that test. Sure. But but in doing that, you were closed up inside the spacecraft, hatch closed, 100% oxygen. 100% oxygen on the ground in order to have the pressure inside the spacecraft, that meant you were operating at about, no, maybe 16, 16 and a half PSI. Wow. Now, when you do that in orbit, when you operate 100% oxygen in, in orbit, you're at 5 PSI because that's plenty of oxygen to keep you alive and keep the operations. Yes, sir. So when they ended up at 16 PSI and then they couldn't get the test really going, so they were operating for hours to get ready for it, uh, saturated the uh, any materials in there that, and uh, with oxygen, and when they had the fire, they couldn't get the hatch open. and they were so gone. sad. Oh, that's so sad, sir. And I remember... Tell me if I'm wrong on this, uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that we were down at the Kennedy Space Center for a media interview, and we were given the tour, and then someone there said to us, we're going to take you to an area that the public doesn't normally see. And I said, okay, I'm ready. And our cameraman and myself went. They told us no pictures at the uh, Air Force launch station because they had some kind of secret payload, I guess, there. But we went over, sir, to the actual launch of the Mercury and we went to the Gemini stand, which was all kind of all destroyed, I guess. And then we went to the Apollo 1 test stand, where the small memorial is to the astronauts Grissom Chaffee. Yeah. And I bowed my head and stood there in silence, like so many people should. 
But that's so sad, sir, because you're describing what? That there was a horrific fire in an oxygen environment 100% at an atmospheric pressure, which what? Everything in there was just literally laden and soaked, and you couldn't get the doors open in time when this spark ignited somehow. Electrical fire. Is that, is, yes. is that a fair statement? Electrical? Right. That's very sad. So I was, I was thinking that that was the spot, right, where they have that test stand, the concrete test stand. They have a little plaque there. So that, to me, is just an amazing sacred site to talk about the Apollo era. Yeah, well, that's, like, that's where we launched from. Wow. And that's Apollo incredible. 7. Yeah, wow. and Apollo 7, the, the few people know that on the numbering of it back there, mm-hmm. what we now call Apollo 1 was because Gus Grissom, and after he was gone, his widow was pushing on it, and and Gus was trying to get it called Apollo 1 because it was the first manned Apollo. But it yeah. was about the, it was the fourth, I think it was the fourth uh, mm-hmm. uh, launch of an Apollo command module. It would have been. Yes. But when, wow. uh, actually, when they got killed, they went back to the regular uh, numbering system, and that would have been Apollo 4 mm-hmm. at the time. So by the time we flew, and what we when we flew, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing because uh, we launched 21 months later, and we've lost a couple of shuttles, and I think the quickest any one of those got off afterwards, even though this problem was well known for them, you know, even from the beginning uh, of that. It was like, I think, 31 months was one, and 33 months was on another one. So here we were. Uh, 21 months after the fire, and we had paid 1,040 changes, most of which you wouldn't think of as, you know, kind of trivial. For example, just fixing how a switch worked or uh, what position it was locked in, uh, trying to keep from bumping switches, things like that. But then we had some systems changes and all that as well. And uh, 21 months later, we launched... That was the seventh Apollo launch. I said, Gus and Ed and Roger, that would have been the fourth Apollo launch. Uh, The the mission uh, at the time, uh, we had done everything we could to make it as safe a vehicle as possible, but we, all of us knew that we need to go off into space. Even today, actually, you're sticking your neck out a little Mm -hmm. bit there. Yes, sir. Well, that spacecraft, Apollo 7, uh, it turned out, and even to this day, it was the longest, the most ambitious, the most successful first test flight of any new flying machine ever. Well, this is amazing, folks. If you're listening to the show, of course, and we thank you for doing so, the Dr. Sky Show always gets great guests. How about today's guest, Walt Cunningham, Lunar Module Pilot, Apollo 7, talking and reminiscing about the entire early Apollo program, his mission. And, Walt, I'm going to read something here to this audience. You know it. You lived it. This also has some memorable credits to the Apollo 7 mission, the first three-person American space mission, the first live television broadcast from an American spacecraft, and naturally, as we talked, the only manned launch from Launch Complex 34, some 163 Earth orbits and some 11 days. You lived it. i got to ask you this, sir. What's it like to ride the rocket to space? Because... I imagine, like many others, Wally Shira had a great love of, uh, for Gunther Vent and so many of the astronaut corps. He was like the last person, I guess, that people saw when they placed people in the, like yourselves into the capsules in Apollo and beyond. 
But what's it like to get into that particular capsule? It's not a very big environment. And what's it like to be launched? What's that feeling like? We, we, we'll, we'll never experience it ourselves. We've got to listen to a guy who's done it. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, it's kind of tough to explain <clears throat> to the public at large that's remote from this because they always ask, oh, excuse me, they're always asking, you know, were you afraid? Mm-hmm. And, of course, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I'm sure that almost everybody agrees with me. And when we say, no, we weren't afraid, they, they mm-hmm. think we must have been crazy or that we're lying. Right. which is not the case. But fortunately, in those days, you had to be a, a, a fighter pilot, and we'd all been used to sticking our necks out. We knew that when you were applying to go up into space for the first time back then, that uh, you were at risk, but we were used to that. We uh, It was part of our life at the time to, as, a, as a fighter pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, the launch itself uh, went fine. We were irritated about one thing. We were two and a half month, two and a half minutes late on liftoff because they had about a half hour before they had stopped to uh, uh, bring the pressure up one more yeah. psi on one of our tanks. I can't remember what it was. So mm-hmm. I can remember us being irritated that we didn't get off at eleven o'clock. It was eleven o two and a half or something like that. So the Operational aspects of the of the way we were and the people we had there at that time was looking forward to that. I can't speak for all of the mm-hmm. uh, thirty we had in our programs at that time as to whether they were afraid or not. But I never saw one that said he was or admitted he was. But we yes. looked forward to make a success of out of that, and uh, and I have to tell you, Apollo Seven was really successful. You know, I'm hearing from other astronauts that the Gemini ride to space was kind of bumpy and rough, but this one on the Saturn 1B, describe it. I mean, this is interesting. Uh, you feel what? This amazing jolt, or, or you feel a, a slight compression, and then what? Uh, eight and a half or ten minutes later, you're in another environment called weightlessness, if that's correct. Well, it's it's kind of interesting on the feeling when you think about it, but you see, when you're in orbit, we're right close to seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. You bet. When you're lifting Fast. off, you're when you're lifting off, you're starting off at zero. Mm-hmm. So uh, it takes a couple, several seconds before you can get clear of the tower. And we're about parts of it was about maybe a foot away from some of the, the support material down there. So uh, sure. it started off slow. Slowly we get by it, and after we, after a few seconds, and we're clear of the tower, we basically were just uh, we were along for the ride. We were checking our systems, keeping in track of them, uh, and uh, the ground on a lot of them, the ground could still read some of those systems. Yes, uh, you know, every minute one of us, one or the other, would make a ground check on the uh, on the audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time and then was, I think it was a little over ten minutes on the on the Saturn before the one B before we got into orbit. But uh, I don't remember anybody uh, having a, a thought of fear, mm-hmm. and we kind of breathed a sigh of relief uh, when we staged after a couple of minutes and dropped the the big booster off. Uh, also, when we uh, got rid of the launch escape tower, they they did that. 
uh, before we staged the vehicle. Yes. It was just an, it was an operational feeling that went mm-hmm. uh, really almost perfect. Now I can't speak for everybody else, but for me, I never felt any fear, and I was I was just glad to see how it was going. Well, Walt, this is an amazing story. We've got a few moments left here, and I want to jump, join in, and have you join in, that is, with us on some questions on this. Obviously, there was no lunar module attached in this mission, as future missions to the moon have been required. You were docking with the S-4B, and this is interesting. It's kind of a technical thing. I'm reading this. That as that S-4B was meant to do a rendezvous with, simulating a lunar module release out of that particular stage, Apparently, one of the big adapter panels never opened beyond the 45-degree mark, so future missions, I guess, they had those jettisoned, but that's an amazing thing. It's, it's like doing a ballet in space. I mean, how, how hard is it to really rendezvous with something? It's not easy, right? Let, 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 let people know this. Oh, well, you raised, you raised a question that a few minutes ago I was, I was going to mention, you because know, I was yes. listed as, as lunar module pilot, and we had no lunar module, and we were in Earth exactly. orbit. But right. so they list me as a lunar module pilot. Same way on mm-hmm. Apollo eight, the uh, the right seat was uh, Bill Anders, and he was listed as lunar module pilot. They had no lunar module because the lunar module was running behind on its development and its testing and what have you. We finally got it on Apollo nine. It's got a lunar sure. module, but uh, uh, we launched, uh, got into orbit, uh, did the separation. Uh, went fine. We were supposed to simulate a docking with the S-4B, but unfortunately, two things. Uh, we didn't. The first one didn't bother us much. It was, it was, it was kind of drifting and, and moving. But when we turned around, one of the panels that was supposed to have, they were all supposed to have opened far enough so that you could move up close to the target. We had no lunar module in there, but we had a target where it would have been for us to dock. So we couldn't really do that. Uh, and part of the fix after that, after our mission, is they fixed it so that all four of those uh, pieces of the of the uh, uh, S4B would mm-hmm. blow off completely, as opposed to just open up like that. So that was right, a good yeah. plus that mm-hmm. came out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing is we were in a spacecraft that. Uh, when you, only then, when when Wally Schrau was flying it at that time, and he was maintaining position, he was flying formation, kind of, on the uh, S-4B. Mm-hmm. And we were able to do that. We had enough fuel there for it. After that, for almost the whole time of the 11 days, we were drifting. And we were drifting because it takes fuel to control your attitude mm-hmm. and to get to an attitude, and we didn't have enough fuel on board to do that. So uh, most of the time you're pointing out into the uh, planetary, you know, the system out there, into the universe, uh, and occasionally you're looking at the Earth. Occasionally you can take pictures. There's a lot of reasons why we couldn't get a lot of pictures, Uh, but but that's, that's the way it went after we got into orbit. And also, something important here, a little on the technical side, and you're the man to ask here, the main rocket propulsion on the command service module, the SPS engine, that, of course, had to be tested naturally before any astronauts were to go to the moon. So I'm reading in my own research here that apparently when they lit that engine, it kind of gave a nice jolt. Is that, is that fair to say? Or am I putting that mildly when they first turned that SPS to, uh, to power? 
Yes, and the engine did give me a, a jolt. We were expecting it. We were prepared for it. In fact, during our mission, uh, we fired that engine eight times. Uh, the shortest one was just a couple of seconds uh, to see if you could do that. Uh, and then we had, I think one was uh, over a minute on that. Uh, it felt good. We felt like we were moving like we were for a change, and you could feel your back against the against the couch. Uh, that Our spacecraft was running so well that they added, after we launched, they added four different mission objectives to it, two of which we never could get done. So when we got back, they called it 101% successful. That's awesome. And that paved the way, ladies and gentlemen, in our interview today with uh, astronaut of Apollo 7, Walt Cunningham, to get the next crew, Apollo 8, to do the circumnavigation of the moon, the most memorable time in history. But without you guys, we would never see this great success moving forward. And to all the astronauts, we want to thank you. Just a couple of quick closing comments, sir, and your, your response on the more impersonal side. You, of course, and the crew were invited by President Lyndon Johnson at a ceremony on November 2nd, 1968. Unfortunately, at the time, and this is interesting, all these Apollo crews were given the Distinguished Service Medal, your crew was then given it later in time in the year 2008. Why I'm mentioning this is because you deserved it just like the rest of those guys and people who supported the program. And then on November 6th of that same year, you appear on the Bob Hope Show with Barbara Eden of I Dream of Jeannie. That's to me awesome. So there's a lot of stories behind the stories. So was it, well, how was it like to meet President Johnson on the ranch? That must have been pretty cool. Well, he's not too far away from... Where we were stationed down here, but he's—I've uh, been with him on a number of occasions. He was actually a, a very nice guy, and they, we did have afterwards. We had the the press conference and the uh, uh, medals presented there at uh, the, the ranch, the Johnson Ranch. Mm-hmm. He was very uh, hospitable. In fact, when we flew into there, uh, he took us in in his car and he drove us around his ranch a little bit before we got wow. started. Uh, what was the other question you asked me? Though? No, I was saying you also appeared on the Bob Hope Show with Barbara Eaton. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, what you see what happened that uh, occasionally people might know. Uh, I've got a uh, an Emmy sitting out right near my front door here where I live, and nobody ever even uh, asks about it. But we got, we had the first live television from space. Oh yeah. And there was some fuss over that uh, between Wally and the ground, and there were several other. Problems when we got into uh, orbit. Wally uh, got a cold, uh, and most of the public out there thinks that we all had a cold. It's not the case. I never had a cold. Sure. I think I actually coughed once or twice, and, uh, and he didn't have a cold either. Uh, so it's it's kind of strange. But Wally was uh, operating in a slightly different philosophy than we were, and I'll tell you okay. why. Yes, Wally and the ground. Wally uh, was insisted that he was in command of the mission, mm-hmm. and that's because his father had been an admiral and his grandfather had been an admiral. And uh, Wally said that uh, whoever's in charge of the ship uh, was in, in control of that yes. ship, wasn't mm-hmm. the people outside from the ship. So he is. He's, Basically, it established a kind of a negative feeling uh, from the mission control people. So they did uh, later, many years later. Actually, I learned that uh, mm-hmm. they tried they turned off 
uh, just moving that crew. But I went on into, uh, I, I had been already scheduled to go in to the, uh, 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 the first space station to go up there. So for about two years, mm-hmm. I was running that, and I was, I was scheduled to fly that one until uh, Pete Conrad, who had a lot, of, a lot of seniority to me, and he decided to stay, and he, he came in charge, and he was very, very, one of the most capable people that I knew in the program down there. So I I ended up going out and making a living instead of uh, hanging around and just being a backup for the, that one. Well, Walt, I want to thank you. We're almost out of time here, but stay on the line after we do say thank you and, and goodbye for now. But Ladies and gentlemen, amazing stories. These are the best stories, in Dr. Skye's opinion, those that served their country in the military, those that, of course, moved on to the special right stuff category. Not everybody could do it. Not everybody would do it. But today's special guest, Walt Cunningham, he is the lunar module pilot of a future mission that they talked about, that it actually happened, Apollo 7, paving the way for astronauts to make it to the moon. A most amazing story. And read his book. It's The All-American Boys, a great book, ladies and gentlemen. This particular man goes into history books as one of the great American astronauts. He was also the book contributor and also a big contributor to the In the Shadow of the Moon, chairman of the Texas Aerospace Commission, and rightfully so, given NASA's Distinguished Service Medal and NASA's Exceptional Service Medal. And to all the astronauts out there, we pay homage today to everybody listening, to those that perished, Apollo 1 astronauts, for some Chafee and White, and many other astronauts that gave their lives, not only here in America, but around the world, to move on to the last final frontiers they talk about in Star Trek. But seriously, folks, the Latin phrase, ad astra, to the stars, is what we talk about. I want to say again, thank you so much, Walt Cunningham, for joining us. I hope we can talk again and share more episodes of this epic journey. Some 11 days in space, ladies and gentlemen, testing out all the fine features. Like if you had a brand new car and it was about to be put into mass production, these are the gentlemen that made sure that everything worked from the wiper blades to the engine and making sure that the key turned and the engine went when it was supposed to. Thank you so much, Walt Cunningham of Apollo 7. I'm Dr. Sky, thanking each and every one of you for listening to this legacy, as you call it, here for over 10 years with our producer extraordinaire, Richard Dugan of radio station KZSB, that's AM 1290 in Santa Barbara, California. Stay on the line with us. Walt Cunningham, thank you so much for your service to America as United States Marine Corps Colonel in the Reserves, retired. We salute your service, sir, to the United States of America. Thank you, Dr. Sky. Thank you, sir. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.